Charlemagne is credited with being the first Holy Roman Emperor, and he certainly was crowned by a pope, and it did happen in Rome. But his empire splintered soon after his death, and for a century, there was nothing that could be confused with the Holy Roman Empire of the Middle Ages. That is, until a Germanic king named Otto came along and turned a fractured successor state of Charlemagne's empire into a kingdom that would last for nearly 900 years. This is the Almost Forgotten. Welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at great historical lives that have mostly fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. Episode 1.6, Otto the Great, King of Saxony, East Francia, and eventually, the Holy Roman Emperor. Otto the Great was born in 912 AD in Saxony, a powerful Germanic duchy within the East Frankish kingdom. His father was Henry the Fowler, King of East Francia and of Saxony. His mother was named Matilda, and she was the daughter of a Saxon count. What was the East Frankish kingdom? We'll get there, but first, let's do our tour of the world. The Viking Age was in full swing as they raided throughout northern Europe and further south. Some had set up a dynasty around Kiev, ruling the Rus people, and were just emerging as a power in the region. Others had also just carved out a small state in the northeast part of West Francia, the Duchy of Normandy which would soon involve itself greatly in the affairs of England. And in England, Alfred the Great's son was king in Wessex and continued his father's expansion over the other kingdoms on the island. The Byzantine Empire was experiencing a resurgence after the Muslim conquests under what was called the Macedonian dynasty. They controlled modern-day Greece and Turkey and parts of southern Italy. The Muslim world had been divided somewhat for a few centuries, with the Abbasid Caliphate still very powerful in Egypt and the Levant, but starting to decline. They had lost grip on Iran, as well as Cordoba in Spain, and in Libya, which were also independent. In Asia, the Tang Dynasty, which had capitalized on Emperor Wen of Sui's unification of China to see three centuries of being perhaps the most advanced civilization in the world, had just collapsed into an era known as the Five Dynasties and Ten Kingdoms period. Champa and the Khmer Empire ruled Indochina, and Srivijaya was ascendant to the south of that. The Indian subcontinent was divided into several powerful empires and many smaller, weaker ones. In West Africa, the Gao Empire was probably the most powerful state, although not much evidence remains. Over in the Americas, the Classic Maya period had just collapsed, and the Toltec culture was dominant in central Mexico. Back to Otto's corner of the world, it's probably best to go back a few centuries to get an understanding of what was happening, starting with the breakup of the Roman Empire and the eventual dissolution of the western portion of the empire in the 5th century AD. One of the main barbarian tribes that swept through the region after the Huns was a Germanic group known as the Franks. By the fall of the western Roman Empire, the Frank center of power was in northern Gaul, today's northern France, Belgium, and the Netherlands. In 511, their king Clovis took advantage of the end of the Western Romans and conquered the Kingdom of Soissons, a rump Roman state located between the English Channel and the Loire River in northern France. Clovis conquered further south into Aquitaine, 
and this all formed the beginnings of Francia and his Merovingian dynasty. The Merovingians ruled Gaul, but eventually they became rulers in name only. The mayors of the palace became de facto rulers of the empire, starting with a man named Pepin II. The job was sort of prime minister of the kingdom, but at this point maybe shogun was a better term. The Pippinids became the actual rulers of Francia when Charles Martel's son, Pepin the Younger, declared himself king in 751. Pepin's son, Charlemagne, expanded the empire east and south. Charlemagne, in the latter half of the 700s, brought Bavaria into the empire, as well as the Lombard kingdom, covering northern Italy down through Rome. While it was neither a continuation nor an extension of it, this Carolingian empire essentially ruled over the European portion of the Western Roman Empire, other than the Iberian Peninsula, southern Italy, and England. Charlemagne also brought in Old Saxony to the empire, which was the land between the Rhine and the Elbe, something the Romans could never effectively control. In this light, it it makes sense that the Holy Roman Empire had its origins with Charlemagne. He was the emperor of Rome, after all. And it was occupying most of the same Roman Empire territory that the popes, centered in Rome, really cared about, the western half. But it was not to last. The Franks had a habit of divvying up kingdoms among several heirs, and... Although Charlemagne and his descendants tried their best to name a senior heir to limit the division, eventually the kingdom broke apart. Besides the tradition of splitting up the kingdom, there was not really a formalized way to dish out inheritances, and sons of the king weren't necessarily given precedence over the king's brothers, except for the times that they were, which only muddied the waters more. In 843, the Treaty of Verdun was signed, dividing the Carolingian Empire into three parts, West Francia, Middle Francia, and, can you guess it, East Francia. They remained divided until the early 880s, when Charles III, much later named Charles the Fat, so who knows if he was anything more than big-boned, became the ruler of all the Frankish kingdoms. He was given this honor through force of being the only suitable surviving Carolingian, a descendant of Charlemagne, but he was not a ruler of a unified empire. He was explicitly the ruler of three separate kingdoms. The division of the Carolingian Empire had been set, albeit with some fluid borders, and he ruled at the behest of the aristocracy, not at the expense of them. After he was deposed, the empire was truly done, and there weren't enough Carolingians to go around and fill thrones anyway. In 887, Arnulf, the great-great-great-grandson of Charlemagne and a descendant of East Francia's kings, became king of the Eastern Frankish kingdom. He did invade Italy, and although he wasn't able to keep it, he was crowned as the Roman emperor. But he died in 899, and after that, The crown was empty, or filled by a local Italian king, for just over 60 years. After the death of Arnulf's young successor, there were no appropriate Carolingians to rule East Francia. At this point, Charlemagne's former kingdom was essentially now two kingdoms, East and West Francia, as well as a few smaller kingdoms. Middle Francia just didn't really exist anymore. The northern part was, at this point, under the territory of West Francia, while Provence and Italy were now independent kingdoms. East Francia itself was split internally in many ways. 
Unlike the West, it hadn't been dominated by the Franks for 400 years and by Rome for 400 years before that. While some of it was part of Clovis's Frankish kingdom, much of it was only taken by Charlemagne 100 years earlier, and it was never the center of Frankish power even under Charlemagne. It was a land of client kings, vassal states, and alliances. The other Germanic tribes held quite a bit of sway, and the leaders of these other kingdoms started to make their presence known. There may have been a few reasons for this, but invasions from the south and east by the Magyars, as well as Viking raids in the north, and battles with Slavs to the northeast, necessitated some more local independence. While the king was down south trying to conquer Italy, the local dukes had to fight off invaders, so it gave them some serious sway. With a need for a king and no obvious successors, one of these dukes, Conrad I of Franconia, was elected king of East Francia. Franconia was essentially the part of the original Frankish kingdom before Clovis went a-conquering that hadn't been given to Middle Francia. Conrad was a Frank, the Germanic tribe that had ruled much of Western Europe for four centuries now, but when he died, he supposedly recommended that his rival, the Duke of Saxony, be the next king. This is how, in 918 AD, a Saxon named Henry the Fowler, supposedly named for something to do with birds, not, as I had hoped, for what happened to his enemies' breaches whenever he engaged in battle with them, became the first non-Frankish king of East Francia. Francia was the kingdom of the Frank. Everyone had to be named Frank, but all of a sudden, a Saxon is in charge. The dukes, or vassal kings, or whatever you want to call them, elected their king, and Henry, after his endorsement from Conrad, was the establishment candidate. He was elected by the Saxons and the Franconians, but the Bavarians were sick of the fat cats in Austrasia pushing them around, so they elected their own king, another Arnulf. But the kingdom remained unified as Arnulf did submit to Henry in some way, essentially saying, okay, you can call yourself the king of us, but you're the leader of a group of equals rather than a true lord of the entire realm. Henry needed the approval of his dukes, his fellow kings, to get things done. Henry was able to do something very important, especially considering the fratricidal policy of these Frankish kingdoms for the last four centuries, and that was to name a successor and convince most of the dukes of the validity of this. So when Henry died in 936, his 23-year-old son, Otto, came to power without too much conflict, at least at first. Otto had been married six years earlier to Edith, the daughter of another Saxon king, This king was Edward the Elder, son of Alfred the Great, and he was king of the Western Saxons, or Wessex in England. After his father died, the young Otto made his way to Aachen, where Charlemagne's throne sat, and became the first emperor to have his coronation there in maybe a hundred years. The location was significant beyond just the historical connection. It signals that his father Henry had brought Aachen into East Francia's territory, and it was part of that northern section of Middle Francia called Lotharingia, or Lorraine, that East and West fought over from the disillusion of Middle Francia until, I don't know, 1945? Otto himself was the leader of the Duchy of Saxony, and he had the heads of each of the other four duchies in the kingdom, Franconia, Swabia, Lotharingia, and even Arnulf of Bavaria, there as cupbearers or other honorific roles. This showed that they were submitting to his authority, 
It is not unimportant to note that this coronation was done in the manner of the Franks with Frankish ceremonial dress. It signaled that, yeah, he was Saxon, but he was the leader of the Frankish kingdom, and it may have been done to settle some fears that his Germanic tribe would be operating differently in some way. Unfortunately for Otto, the crowning did not necessarily signal total obedience. Rivals from within his family and some of the dukes who were of his father's generation decided to rebel. Civil war followed and lasted for the next half a decade. Rather than a concerted civil war or rebellion, though, it appears that what Otto was dealing with was a kingdom full of independent-minded countries who saw an opportunity to break free or perhaps gain the leadership of the kingdoms themselves. As one group rebelled, it was a signal to others that it might work out well for them to do the same. It started in Bavaria, where King Arnulf had ruled under Henry, though Arnulf still held most of the power within Bavaria. But Arnulf died in 937, a year after the coronation of Otto, and his son wasn't as keen on the subservient role. We aren't exactly clear on what happened, but Otto seems to have dealt with it fairly quickly, sending the duke into exile and putting Arnulf's brother, Berthold, in his place. In Saxony, Otto's home turf, the situation was more difficult. Here it wasn't just business, it was personal. Otto's half-brother Thankmar expected to be named to a high military post after the death of a very well-regarded advisor. Instead, Otto gave it to the advisor's brother, Jiro. Another man, Wickman Billung, who was married to Matilda's sister, wanted a military command in Saxony, and it was given to his younger brother, Hermann Billung, instead. In addition to those two unsatisfied promotion seekers, Eberhard, the Duke of Franconia, wasn't too happy either. Everhard was happy to pay homage to Henry the Fowler when he was king, but not Otto. Apparently one of his vassals was Saxon and was not behaving. Maybe he was acting too big for his britches knowing the kingiest king was Saxon too. Everhard sacked one of this guy's castles, killed a bunch of people, and was promptly called to the principal's office. Otto ordered a fine and a public shaming, and that was the end of Everhard's cooperation with those Saxon dogs. Otto moved quickly, and Thankmar was killed after being captured in a siege. The rest of the opposition quickly melted away. Pardons all around, and some people were exiled, and everything was quiet for a bit. But the next year, 939 AD, Eberhard was at it again, this time in league with Otto's brother, Henry of Bavaria, as well as Gilbert of Lotharingia. Gilbert tried to forge an alliance with West Francia in order to get out from under Otto and he and his co-conspirators laid waste to the territory of the Lotharingian counts who remained loyal to Otto. Eventually, some of Otto's allied counts in the region defeated this set of rebels in the Battle of Andernach, near the town of the same name on the Rhine River. Eberhard and Gilbert were both killed in the battle, and brother Henry quickly fell back into line. Franconia was then cut up into smaller duchies, which makes some sense, the last king before Otto's dad was from Franconia, so maybe make it not be a kingdom anymore. As for Henry, ever the magnanimous partner of indolent rivals, Otto sent him to be in charge of Lotharingia in place of the no longer living former Duke Gilbert. Henry didn't take so well to Lotharingia, though, so he went back to Saxony in 940, and this time plotted an assassination of Otto rather than another revolt. This was the last straw, although, somewhat surprisingly, not for Henry, just for his revolts. 
Apparently, after the plot was exposed, rather than Henry's execution, we see a true and lasting reconciliation between him and Otto. Henry was a loyal and trusted leader from then on, so that reconciliation was no joke. These civil wars and revolts, meant to reduce or eliminate Otto's power, had quite an opposite effect. In Bavaria and Franconia, as well as Swabia, the power of the dukes became greatly reduced. Otto's family members started being placed on the ducal thrones, and this is no minor move. The situation in Swabia was typical. Otto's son Liudolf married the daughter of the former duke, was given the title, and all of a sudden you had a Saxon vassal king ruling over the Swabians. In Lotharingia, Conrad the Red, a cousin of Otto, was given the dukedom and was married to Otto's daughter. This is an interesting development. Franks were always in charge of all these Francias until Otto's father Henry came along. But rather than trying to create a completely Saxon-led empire, what Otto was really doing was blurring the lines of the Germanic fiefdoms. It's not exactly the German nationalism of the 1800s, but it starts to make a more unified empire from a confederation of small kingdoms. Otto also established his power over areas outside of the traditional German territory. He rescued the young king of Burgundy from the king of Italy. This helped give Otto essentially dominion over Burgundy. Otto was also powerful enough to start playing a role in West Francian affairs, working to mediate issues between the king there, Louis IV, and the powerful Duke Hugo the Great. Interestingly, he tended to let his subordinate Dukes of Lotharingia, that territory that had vacillated between East and West, take charge of this mediation. This particular influence didn't remain very long, but it showed that in the 940s and 950s at least, Otto was the most powerful man in all of the former Carolingian lands. In 945 AD, Berenger, a Frank who had one time had fled north to be under Otto's protection, returned to his home of Italy to claim the throne there. By 950, his two rival kings in the region were dead, but he still didn't have a solid hold on power. Adelheid was the sister of one of those rival kings and the widow of another. If she remarried, her husband would have a legitimate claim as well. Otto was married, but Henry of Bavaria, Otto's once rebellious brother, went down to Italy with a small expedition, as did Otto's son Leodolf. I haven't seen any speculation that either of them was intended to marry Adelheid, but it would have been wise politically. Then, in 946, Otto's wife Edith died. Nothing suggests foul play, but it did put Otto in a different position in terms of marriage now. Something happened during the expedition to put everyone at odds, and Otto had to come down there himself with a large army, and Berenger went to hide in the Alps. Otto then married Adelheid, and now had claimed to the throne of Italy. He left Conrad the Red, the Duke of Lotharingia, in charge of mopping up, and went back north in 952. Conrad allowed Berenger to remain as king as long as he accepted Otto as his overlord. Of course, once the Germans were gone, the Italian king, well, the Frankish king of Italy, had a pretty free reign, as it were. In 953 AD, Otto faced his final real rebellion, once again led by a family member. This time it was his son, Leodolf, who was not satisfied with being the Duke of Swabia and being heir apparent. If this seems odd, apparently Leodolf, along with Conrad and Lotharingia, wasn't really attempting to overthrow Otto. Instead, the two were attacking Otto's brother Henry 
in part because of the politics of that Italian campaign, although Leodolf may have felt threatened from the offspring of his father in Adelheid. Whatever set them off, Otto went to have Easter dinner in Aachen, which was in Lotharingia, and nary a goose or a spiral ham had been prepared for him by Conrad. This was quite the slight, and so Otto went to Mainz, where the Archbishop Frederick tried to negotiate some accord. Otto signed it, but then disavowed it, saying it favored the rebels and was signed under duress. This threw the well-respected Archbishop Frederick in with the rebels, and some of the other unsatisfying nobles saw an opportunity. Wickman Billong the Younger, the son of that rebellious Saxon, as well as nobility in Bavaria, joined the cause. Historian Karl Leiser wrote in his book, Medieval Germany and Its Neighbors, that the rebellion was, quote, a disruptive and incoherent affair. The interests of the king's opponents were diverse and conflicting, unquote. Perhaps because of this, or maybe because Henry of Bavaria was more of a target than Otto, it didn't last despite some significant setbacks for Otto. In fact, Henry was in a spot of trouble at the beginning. His castle had been sacked, and the rebels were somewhat satisfied. It seems they tried to negotiate peace with Otto, but he stuck by his brother Henry, and the rebellion continued. Conrad the Red pulled back from battle when Otto's youngest brother Brun led an Ottonian army to confront him. And, in 954, a greater threat appeared, the Magyars. The Magyars, another name for the Hungarians, had been a constant threat to the region and had raided much of the southeast early in Otto's reign. The Magyars were a nomadic steppe tribe that had made their way to eastern Europe and raided deep into the former Carolingian territory, including northern Italy, eastern France, and even Spain. They had raided almost every year from about 900, causing serious destruction. They crushed most armies of Otto's predecessors, as well as laying waste to parts of France and much of Italy. The story usually went something like this. Magyars appear, Frankish army gets crushed, countryside gets raised, tribute payment agreed upon. In 924, Otto's father Henry was getting crushed by them when he happened upon a Hungarian nobleman. It appears he traded him for a decade or so of peace, along with paying them tribute. In 933, Henry actually defeated them in battle, which made them focus attention elsewhere, but when Otto was crowned, they saw an opportunity and began raiding again. On and off through the next two decades, they were a threat, sometimes allying themselves with rival claimants, and now they were appearing at the gate, or maybe past the gate, so that is where Otto had to turn. Allegedly, Otto's son Liudolf invited Hungarian chieftains to a feast. Conrad may have done the same. This allowed Henry to accuse them of conspiring with the Magyars to take over the empire. This gave Otto the break he needed as support from nobility started disappearing for his rivals. Conrad entered peace talks and a truce was signed. But Liudolf stormed out of the negotiations as Otto still accused him of conspiring with the Magyars, which... Maybe he was. It seemed that the Magyars, who spent much of 954 plundering the empire, even camped in safety under Conrad's protection. The fact is, they had inserted themselves into the shifting alliances of the region and were probably more involved in any of this than we really know. But back to that in a moment. 
Liudolf, as well as Arnulf, the second king of Bavaria, who also was in open rebellion, were besieged at Regensburg. Arnulf died in the fighting, and Liudolf fled. Otto caught up with his son's army and, in typical Ottonian fashion, pardoned him completely. Liudolf and Conrad were given important titles, although some of their previous entitlements were gone. Their submissions helped further solidify Otto's rule, and this was really the last time he saw any major rebellion. In 954, amidst all this chaos, the Magyars did, for maybe the third time that century, a great loop. That is, they raided into East Francia and retreated, not back in the direction they came, because they were deep into Otto's territory by then. Instead, they continued west through Lotharingia, then down through West Francia, before coming back through Italy to return to the Hungarian steppe. There is decent enough evidence that Conrad and Liudolf did have something to do with their arrival that year. As always, they plundered throughout their whole journey, but they didn't do much in the way of capturing fortified cities. They were mounted steppe archers, and they attacked in the way that fighters did from the steppes for centuries. They came in lightning fast, with the advantage of surprise, and when the going got rough, they feigned retreats to try to get their enemies to break rank and chase. When that happened, they turned around and attacked again. This was not an army built for protracted sieges, and it was not one made for hand-to-hand combat. Otto's army, however, was just the opposite. We're into medieval Europe at this point, so yeah, there were certainly mounted knights, but most of his forces were going to be infantry. The following year, 955, East Francia once again saw the arrival of the Magyars, but for whatever reason it was different this time. Perhaps the raids of 954 were truly enough to get people united. The histories do record that year's campaign as one of the great raids of the century. Or maybe those who had rebelled against Otto just felt shamed enough into joining against the foreign invader. The Magyars came with maybe a bit of a different purpose. Not full-on conquest, probably but the numbers they brought were at least 20,000, perhaps as many as 50,000. Maybe they wanted a real battle to defeat Otto so they could more easily plunder north into Saxony. They came across the river Lech on the Bavarian border with Swabia in massive numbers and plundered the Swabian countryside. The river was on the border of Swabia and Bavaria, so at least two duchies were involved. Throw in a third as it wasn't that far south of Franconia and Saxony to the north was concerned because Otto was concerned. The Magyars attacked the city of Augsburg, but it was fortified, so they besieged it. This was atypical for them, but not unprecedented. Horse archers aren't the best siege troops, so they probably had a good deal of infantry, perhaps even enslaved soldiers with them. They even had siege engines, but they were still repulsed in their initial attacks. Before they could break through, on August 9th, 955, they were informed that Otto was coming towards them and was only a day away. They called off the attack and prepared to face him, believing if they defeated Otto, all of East Francia would be theirs for the plundering. Perhaps they knew that Otto was not traveling with a massive army. Many of his Saxon force had to remain behind because the Slavs were making noise to the northeast, and he couldn't spare many troops. Meanwhile, his trusted ally, youngest brother Brun, had been ordered to stay in Lotharingia to cut off the Magyar's opportunity to flee west and do that horse-riding nomad version of the grand tour around Western Europe again. Brun may have also been there to babysit Liudolf, 
Otto and Brun would rather not have Liudolf at the head of an army, just in case that army decided to fight on the Magyar side. As Otto approached, his vassal lords joined him. Henry of Bavaria was sick and near death, but he made sure his men were there. The Bavarians and the Swabians, whose lands were under immediate threat, were both present. Conrad the Red was there too, and his arrival with the Franconian troops was considered a huge morale boost. When the Battle of Lechfeld started on August 10th, many of Otto's forces were beaten up early, and the battle did not look good for him. It seems that the Magyars then tried to encircle Otto, but he saw it coming and ordered Conrad's troops to attack forces coming from the rear in time. Apparently it was a daring and very successful attack for Conrad and his forces. The Hungarians' advantage was reversed. Otto then led his troops forward, and the Western Europeans engaged in hand-to-hand combat at which they excelled. The Magyars were lightly armored, and their main weapon was the composite bow. They stood no chance to the more heavily armored East Francians with their proficiency with melee weapons. Once it came to that, most of the invaders fled, and those who didn't were killed. Those who fled, though, were pursued relentlessly, especially by Bavarian troops whose territory they were trying to escape. Otto's forces actually captured many of the Hungarian leaders, and he had them hanged. This was not the typical fate for captive enemy leaders, but Otto probably knew this would end the invasions, and it did. The result of this battle was literally the end of the Magyar threat to Western Europe. Even the Byzantine emperor sent gifts and congratulations to Otto. As you can imagine, the Hungarians had been raiding in their direction as well. The battle was costly for the East Francians and several important leaders, including Conrad, perished in the fighting. He had apparently loosened the straps of his armor during the especially hot day, and an arrow went right into his throat. Bit of advice, don't take the armor off during the battle. Despite the cost for the Germans, it ushered in a new era of peace and prosperity. The Hungarians just weren't that much of a threat after that. Before that was fully realized, however, Otto, now 42 years old, had one more issue to deal with. Wickman Billing the Younger, one of those rebellious nobles, had never returned to the fold. Instead, he fled the country to the east and rallied the Slavs to come into Saxon territory. Otto, though, was no dope. As I mentioned, he didn't bring a ton of Saxons with him to Lechfeld. They were ready and waiting in Saxony to deal with the threat. Otto went north and met the Slavs at a river in what is today's northeastern Germany, the Mecklenburg-East Pomerania region. This was in the Billunga Mark. Mark, or March, is a term for the borderland, a sort of buffer zone where the governor ruled. Jiro ruled over this and the rest of the northern marches. If you remember, his appointment is what got Thankmar all rebellious a few years back. Jiro, probably being intimately familiar with the countryside, slipped out from the main host and built bridges to cross the river just out of sight. While Otto led an assault across the river meant as a feint, Jiro and a massive host of Otto's forces slipped around. The Slavs were surrounded and quickly defeated. After this, the Slavs in this territory, a sub-region of Jiro's mark, submitted to Otto. East Francia was now free of the threat of external invasion, and the battle had solidified his throne to the point that it was relatively free of internal strife for a century. The Ottonian Renaissance had begun thanks to his victories and the safety and prosperity it ensured. Art, and architecture especially, flourished. 
Otto's story then returns to Italy, where he was, I suppose, technically the king, with Berenger, the Italian king, swearing fealty to him. But Berenger knew his overlord was on the other side of the mountain, so he could sort of do as he pleased. This didn't sit too well with Otto, so in 956 he sent Liudolf back to Italy to retake the territory. However, within a year Liudolf had died of fever. This left Otto without an obvious heir and without Italy. Berenger responded by attacking, first some Ottonian allied areas in Italy, then the Papal States and Rome itself. Otto eventually marched on Italy, but not until 961, after he had his and Adelheid's six-year-old son crowned as his successor. He also got a promise from Pope John XII that he'd be crowned emperor. With that, he advanced south into Italy. Berenger wouldn't engage him in battle, so Otto mobilized his army, took the title King of Italy, and reached Rome in January of 962. He essentially reunited East Francia, the German kingdom, with the Kingdom of Italy, another former Carolingian kingdom. On February 2nd, he was crowned Holy Roman Emperor. He was the first one named since Berenger's grandfather, who had died in 924. Otto was the first non-Frankish emperor. It was still as appropriate a title as it was for Charlemagne. Otto was the emperor, and Rome was part of his empire. The title at the time was simply Imperator Augustus. There was no Romanum in the title, because it was implied. There was only one empire that counted. And this crowning, like Charlemagne's, gave Otto legitimacy, gave him some personal authority over all the Christians in the West, and gave Rome protection from Byzantine advances. Also, like Charlemagne, probably in no small part due to this need for protection, Otto gained some amount of authority, at least secular authority, over the Pope. In his article on the Holy Roman Empire of the 10th century for the Polish Review, Gerhard Ladner wrote that Otto and his successors, quote, can be compared to Charlemagne also, in that they almost but never quite succeeded in assigning to the Pope a somewhat subsidiary role, similar to that which the Patriarch of Constantinople held in the Byzantine Empire. Ottonian imperial ideology came very close to that of Byzantium, unquote. If you think of the Eastern Church, the Patriarch didn't really hold any kind of sway over anything non-religious compared to the Western Popes. That's a great analogy to understand how Otto envisioned his relationship with the Church, and, as we think of the history of the Middle Ages, a preview into how that eventually unraveled. After his coronation, Otto captured Berenger, but then Pope John disavowed the crowning and started plotting against Otto, so Otto brought in his own Pope, Leo VIII. John fled the city, and Otto and his army went back to East Francia. Leo, however, wasn't well accepted by the Roman aristocracy, mostly because John was a part of the Roman elite. Leo was driven out of the city in 964, and John was restored as pope and ruler of the city. John died before Otto could respond, some say rather salaciously and in quite unpope-like fashion. A new pope was elected, and Otto had to march on Rome to bring Leo back in. Otto then went back to East Francia, and probably thought he was all done in Italy, but, oh no, he was back in 966. First, Pope Leo died. Then, before a successor replaced him, Berenger's son started a rebellion. Otto sent an army down to crush him, which it did. Another new pope was named with Italian approval and Otto's consent later that year. 
But the Roman nobility had buyer's remorse and threw this Pope John XIII in prison just a few months into his term, and Otto had to go rescue him. Otto returned to Italy with East Francia and his son and heir Otto II under the care of his illegitimate son William, who was an archbishop and a loyal follower. Before 966 was over, Otto restored Pope John, but this time he didn't return to Germany. Instead, he started to focus on the actual Roman Empire. You know, the one that didn't actually rule Rome, the Basileus Romeum, the Byzantines. This wasn't Otto's first interaction with them. He had received Byzantine dignitaries as far back as the 940s, which was actually the first time East Francia did so in at least 30 years. The Byzantines had requested help in their goal of recapturing Egypt, although nothing came of that. Otto didn't have great relations with the Byzantines. They controlled Italy south of Rome, so there was some natural conflict as Otto consolidated northern Italy. The emperor Nicephorus Phocas, not the Nicephorus who was just killed at the Battle of Plisca for those of you following along with the History of Byzantium podcast, but a different Nicephorus, raided into the Levant and Syria with great effect. He also retook Crete, defeated the Bulgars, and started making moves in Italy. But in 969 he was assassinated, and a new emperor, John Semiscus, came to power in the east. He was also a strong and capable general, but he was preoccupied with internal rebellion, foreign invasion, and eventually his campaigns into Muslim lands. So the relationship between East and West improved with his ascension. It culminated with a marriage of Otto II to Theophanu, the niece of Emperor Tsimiskis. Otto was hoping for a princess that was a daughter of an emperor, but regardless, in 972, she and Otto II were married. He had been crowned as co-emperor at the end of 967, helping ensure further stability of the regime. Otto the Great returned to his home turf in East Francia in 972, before dying in 973. He was 80 years old, had been king of East Francia for nearly 37 years, and Holy Roman Emperor for 11. But Otto's dynasty remained. His son, Otto II, did face a revolt from other Ottonians that he had to put down, but it's important to note that the legitimacy of his rivals amongst their followers was based on their relationship to Otto I. Otto II didn't have a successful tenure, but major defeats at the hands of Muslims in southern Italy and by the Slavs in the eastern marches didn't seem to shake the legitimacy of the ruling dynasty, another tribute to Otto the Great's success. Otto Jr., after cleaning up the revolts and spending some time in Italy, officially changed his title to Imperator Romanum Augustus. But he died young at age 28, and before Otto III came to rule, he was too young. Otto II's wife, Theophanu, ruled as a regent for Otto I's grandson before she died. Grandma Adelheid, Otto I's wife, came back into the picture and ruled as regent after Theophanu's death until Otto III could take the throne. Otto's dynasty and his empire survived about a century, in part because Otto used the church as a unifying force among his people. When it was succeeded by another Frankish dynasty, the Salian dynasty, Part of the issue was the Vatican's attempt to expand its secular power. That's the eventual unraveling of Otto's vision of the relationship I mentioned earlier. It was incompatible with the Ottonian method of ruling a confederation of German principalities. The Salians focused on institutionalizing governance. 
At this point, the Holy Roman Empire was more firmly entrenched, and they didn't need the church or the Atonian name for legitimacy or to keep the empire from splitting apart. Otto had built something that was more than just a fleeting dynasty that was one shape in the fluid maps of Central Europe over the period. New dynasties came and went, but his empire was finally something that could take root and last. Timothy Ruder, in his Germany in the Middle Ages, which was an essential source for me, said, quote, By the late 960s, the new empire seemed to have been re-established on Frankish lines, with a European hegemony based on prestige and authority, and backed in the last instance by military power based on tribute-taking. Otto dominated Europe. There was at least a possibility that a new supra-regional aristocracy might be able to emerge, one perhaps not so dominated by Saxons as its predecessor had been by Franks, but by having much the same sort of function, linking scattered regions by ties of office and property holding." From 962, when Otto was crowned Imperator, the Holy Roman Emperor first and foremost was the King of the Germans, although northern Italy remained a part of it for the next 600-ish years. And, until a French general came through in the early 1800s and took that title for himself, this empire that Otto restarted essentially remained in place, ruled from essentially the same place, for nearly a millennium. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. You can find maps and pictures for this episode and all the others on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, email me at almostforgottenpodcast at gmail.com. That's almostforgottenpodcast, one word, at gmail.com. Or find me on Twitter, at the Almost Forgot. That's just the Almost Forgot, no Almost Forgotten at the end of that one. If you enjoyed this show, or any of the others, please go on iTunes and rate and review the podcast. It helps to show people that this is an actual real podcast and stuff. And please join me next time when we stay focused on Italy and that other Roman Empire, but we move forward two centuries. We'll look at a man who doesn't even appear in the history books until he was 50, but then spent five decades creating a dominant force in the region. Thanks again for listening. (laughs) 